Welcome to Inside Scoop with Sean Emery. Every week we are examining something new, bringing you closer to companies, sectors, and themes. This recording should not be construed as a substitute for personalized individual advice from Avery and Company or any guests on the show. This is for educational purposes only and not intended to make an offer or solicitation for any companies or securities mentioned. With that, let's get on with the episode. All right, let's welcome Ethan Buckman. Buchman, you correct me there. <laughs> to okay, inside, right. there we go. There we go. There we go. To inside industry on Inside Scoop. You know, our goal is to really learn about the ins and outs of an industry, specifically the industry in discussion. You know, we'll use a framework around you know the Porter Five Forces to really dissect the industry at hand. You know, who are the players? Who are the customers? You know, A to Z, how it all functions and works. Things like barriers to entry, bargain and power for customers. Uh, same for the suppliers, the threat of substitution and competitive intensity. You know, for us today, it's freight. I think, uh, again, we, we were just speaking about this offline, Ethan, which was, you know, over the last two years, you know, the, the thought of freight is, has really come to mind. We use your data every week just to talk about, you know, pricing um, in freight. But, you know, during COVID, it was a, a real rapid change in, you know, how we all work, live, play, ship, uh, think about shipping, I guess. You know, but thanks for coming on. I want to give you two seconds to really share more about, you know, Freightos, about yourself. And then we can just dig it right into it and talk about, you know, how that industry works. And we're, we're glad to have you on here. Awesome. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, Sean, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, you know, uh, I think nobody really thinks about international freight. I, I certainly didn't before I got to Freightos. Uh, but it, it's such a great in to kind of understand the general global logistics industry. And it's something that we use every single one of us as a customer of on a regular basis. Uh, the very high level of what Freightos is, is we are a digital freight booking and payment platform that connects between the different players in international freight. So anywhere from importers and exporters through uh, freight forwarders who are basically travel agents for international freight and all the way down to airlines, ocean liners and trucking companies. And it's such an interesting space to be in because if you look back the last 20, 25 years, industry after industry has gone uh, digital in a, you know, initially B2C. So all this buying stuff online, whether it's like CD Baby down to Amazon and slowly that's been permeating uh, more complex business processes, both from a marketplace kind of finding the right uh, provider and workflow automation perspective. And, and we've just kind of um, fit into that exact space of multiple party um, marketplaces connecting these carriers, freight companies, and then freight companies, importers, and exporters of all sizes. Uh, but yeah, let's, you know, I think it's all gibberish kind of until you really unpack what international freight actually is. So let's yeah. just dive right in. Cool. Let's, let's just walk us through an example of a, of a package going from, you know, manufacturer to, you know, uh, to, to me, <laughs> my home, just so people can understand the chain of events that occur. And then we can start digging into the players that are, you know, making that magic happen. Yeah. I, I, by the way, you know, it's, it's such a, a simple question and it really is so convoluted. And I think that's exactly sure. where all this comes down to. Like I, you know, I'll speak to my friends and I'll try to explain to them what I do. And they're like, well, you know, I just order a package and it shows up on my doorstep. So I imagine that international freight is as automated and as, as digital Linear, right? or more. Yeah. It's not. So, you know, what will basically happen is you have these incredibly sophisticated supply chains uh, where you'll have multiple you know, raw materials all getting sent out to you know, a factory, getting manufactured, going to another factory to get assembled. And you know, you'll follow that process five, six, seven, eight, nine times. When you have a finished good, let's say cell phone covers in a factory in Shenzhen, a importer will then try to move those from Shenzhen to their distribution center or to their warehouse somewhere in the United States. When they do that, they'll first call up a freight company. And then that freight company will call up their agent in Shenzhen and say like, hey, guy, I got to move this box of goods or this pallet or this full container of, of um, cell phone covers all the way out from Shenzhen somewhere in the United States. 
And then this person will start this kind of internal, usually offline process of what is the right trucking company to use inside of China to get it to the right port? What is the right port? Is this something that's small enough to go by air cargo or should I be sending it by ocean? How urgent is this? You know, how time sensitive is, how cost sensitive is it? Which port should I send it to? Hey, what is like the labor strikes like on the you know, West Coast ports? Maybe I should be sending it to the East Coast. If it comes into the East Coast, how do I then clear it through customs and then get it to the right trucking company and then send it to the right warehouse? And frequently, you might need to break up that shipment and send it to multiple uh, fulfillment centers, multiple distribution centers. And that whole process can easily take eight, nine, 10 different companies, individual companies that are involved, because there are very few players, practically no player, that owns all of the assets required for moving the actual goods, clearing it through customs and hitting all these regulations in order to get it from A to B. And at that point, that cell phone cover or you know, the, the pallet of cell phone covers is still only at the distribution center and you haven't got to the complexity of the last mile delivery all the way to your doorstep. So you know, we we look at this you know one day delivery time window from Amazon for the for the box to land on our doorstep, but there's eight thousand miles, nine thousand, ten thousand miles before in that where eight, nine different companies have changed, you know, the goods through their hands that we just like never have to think about. And I, I kind of always think about it as like a space mountain, kind of what happens behind the scenes right. when you turn the lights on and you just see everything going on behind there. Yeah, it makes that one day promise out there even more incredible. Um, when you think when you just kind of laid that, you know, so many different moving parts, different jurisdictions, different types of vehicles and vessels, and you know, uh, understanding the price point to get that to your door and and kind of working backwards, but then you know, trying to serve the customer at the same time. You know, let, so so that was a really good you know high level view of you know how something gets to you know A to Z. Now, you know, who are the major players? as we kind of deconstruct, you know, some of the areas and, and obviously, you know, you're not going to know all of them top of, of mind, but um, some of the major players at, at those different hubs in that point of, you know, the journey. And again, the journey can break off in different uh, ways. Uh, I get it going, you know, air versus uh, container ship versus then trucking. And is it, you know, an 18 wheeler versus a van or something like that? Um, just the, the major players that are out there that exist um, in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly large market and very, very fragmented. Uh, if I look at the carrier side, so airlines, ocean liners, some people may know the ocean liners. So like Maersk and MSC are the two largest ocean liners in the world. Uh, there, there's actually this very interesting, you know, at least for, for a very specific type of group of people that are interested in this stuff. Um, but Maersk has the largest ocean or container liner has been making this slow crawl to own the entire supply chain and basically not just be an ocean liner, but also start buying airplanes and buy trucking companies and last mile fulfillment um, companies. I'll put that on the side for a second. So you have uh, about five players in the ocean space that control 70% of global containers. So Maersk, MSC, Hapag uh, Lloyd are some of the larger names there. Airlines are really interesting in that most airlines that we fly on are flying cargo simultaneously. So 50% of all air cargo is moved on passenger airplanes. So if, if you know a large airline, they're also probably a large cargo airline as well. Uh, moving down to the freight companies that are responsible for that coordination, that'll break down into asset-based or non-asset-based. So you'll have freight companies that are basically just brokers that are connecting to pieces but don't actually own their own trucking companies. Uh, and then you'll have, uh, or warehouses, and then you'll have freight companies that actually own the entire ecosystem. And there, what's really, I think, um, kind of unique about freight is the largest players in the world that are definitely moving things that are inside of your house at any given moment. Most people will never have heard of them. So if you're in, in, in the US, you know, you might have seen like a CF Robinson or a CV Logistics truck. But some of the large multinational freight companies, the largest companies like Kuninago or D.B. Schenker, you mention their name and nobody even knows who they are. Like non-freight, you've never heard of these people, but they move your goods on a regular basis. Uh, you also have some regular kind of um, more, I guess, more popular name brands that have slowly been trying to move into international freight to kind of up vertical integration. I think kind of the best example of that is Amazon, who already back in about 2014 registered as a freight company and have slowly been kind of easing their way up to owning more and more of international supply chains uh, on behalf of the sellers. 
on Amazon. Uh, and, and of course, you'll have some larger players that are trying to go even more vertically integrated, like Wayfair, that basically try to own everything from A to Z, where they're moving their own goods and selling their own goods. Um, the, the trucking companies tend to be a little bit less part of the international freight you know, par excellence um, space. International domestic trucking, especially within the United States, is a massive market. It's actually larger than international freight in the United States, uh, but but it stays relatively segmented from international freight as a whole. Got it. So let, let's start moving into you know the the, the five different type of uh, you know forces that exist, which is you know barrier to entry in this space. Um, like how would you characterize you know the barrier to entry? Uh, you know, obviously there's different, again, the whole thing is so fragmented. There's, there's different levels of that, but you know, if you're taking kind of the, the bigger, you know, areas or bigger segments where some of the carriers that you talked about, or even some of the other players and, you know, uh, uh, air freight and, and, and other areas, um, anything you, you, like your, your point of view on, on barriers to entry and in, in the space as a whole and, and any area you want to highlight uh, more specifically. Yeah. So, you know, the barrier to entry to be a carrier, to actually, you know, run a fleet of, of, air, of planes or, or ocean liners is prohibitive. Right, it is incredibly expensive to be a large ocean liner with critical mass to actually provide global services. Is so difficult and so expensive that even the largest players, like folks like Amazon, Alibaba, JD.com, stay away from it. You know, they might invest in ocean liners, but but nobody really wants to get into that business right now. Airlines are a little bit easier because you can buy you know five, six, seven planes and have a relatively decent critical mass on core lanes. But you're never really going to be able to have the volume to compete with the really, really large players. So you're always going to get beat out by the large air cargo, um, air cargo um, airlines. I think freight companies is a really, really interesting one because you have some kind of new age digital folks. So com- people may have heard of Flexport or Affordo in Europe who are digital freight companies that can start off non-asset based where you basically try to leverage technology to integrate all of the different airlines, ocean liners, trucking options, and then work together with a with the importers or exporters. Historically, the barrier to entry there was mostly knowledge-based. So it was, it was really just what is your Rolodex? How many customers do you actually have so that you can negotiate enough, better, good enough rates from the airlines and ocean liners to go directly to importers and exporters? The technology um, barrier to entry has dropped like crazy over the past 10 years, even only the last five years. It used to be really, really difficult. It used to be very easy to start a freight company if you had the right um, book of business, but very difficult to scale up your systems because all of the technology that was created was created for large multinationals with very, very expensive B2B prices. Now, if you're a small importer, it's very, very easy to get into the space. It's very difficult to scale up large enough to negotiate good enough prices with the airlines and ocean liners and get the right level of service uh, to really provide competitive service to your importers and exporters. And, and of course, over the past two or three years with supply chain crises you know, left and right, it's become even more difficult because space on airlines and ocean liners was at such a premium that nobody really wanted to invest. Um, no airline or ocean liner would work with a small business. So building up that critical mass in order to uh, kind of edge your way into competing with larger freight companies was with a very, very large barrier to entry. Got it. No, that makes sense. That's uh, that was very clear. The um, so, so so the customer in terms of pricing, uh, you talked about a little bit uh, of the knowledge, you know, uh, kind of acumen or relationship building that exists in the ecosystem. Technology didn't exist maybe as much, you know, fifteen years ago. So it was definitely relationship driven. Technology like Afredos, I guess, or some of the other tools that exist out there that kind of apply or add some form of transparency. What are you seeing? Maybe like even like five years ago versus today in terms of you know bargaining power from the customer side. As again, you know, more and more transparency is now, you know, uh, 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 coming to, to the front, specifically after COVID, as you know, rates were, were shooting up. Um, so there was a demand for even more transparency, I guess, um, along the way. So any, anything you can share around, around that? Yeah, I mean, the industry as a whole has gone through this very, very large kind of like fundamental shift that I think is still basically landing. The you know, in, international freight, when you get a freight quote to ship something by ocean, 
from China to the United States, your average freight quote will have 23 different fees and surcharges. Uh, so it, it's really complicated to actually pull that quote together. Uh, we, for a long time, we would run a mystery shopping survey where we would create a fake company every single year and try to get price quotes from the top 20 freight forwarders around the world to move those goods. And what was really surprising is that typically the price range <clears throat> between the cheapest freight quote that we would get and the most expensive was well over 100%. And I don't think it was because the freight companies were necessarily trying to rip people off. It's because it was really difficult to calculate that and really difficult to optimize your pricing correctly. So what would end up happening is a lot of these freight companies would try to come up with their best guess, and you had this very, very large range. Uh, initially, freighters as a marketplace, when we started uh, about a decade ago, there was a tremendous amount of concern within the industry that hey, you can't you can't just show prices to people. This is kind of our this is our bread and butter data, and our prices is the most unique asset that we actually have that we've managed to negotiate. And I remember sitting in uh, TPM, which is kind of like the um, the Davos of, of ocean freight actually happening uh, right now in February and early March in Long Beach, and listening to the CEO of DB Shanker, so one of the largest, a top three uh, global freight company. And the CEO got up there and said, hey, transparency is something that's hitting this industry. It's hitting every piece of the industry. We need to figure out how to provide value to the customer via that transparency rather than pushing back against that transparency. And I think that's slowly started to permeate. However, I think there's a big kind of um, caveat to the entire freight pricing um, kind of uh, book of business which is that it does not really matter if you're paying $1,000 or $1,200 to ship a container. If you're moving $30,000 or $80,000 worth of goods and paying that extra $200 means that it will get to Target on time and Target will accept your shipment. So the opportunity cost for mistakes that are made in international freight is so high that it really does not come down to like, can I save 30 cents on this shipment or can I save $2 or $200 on a shipment? The opportunity cost if the goods don't make it there is much, much higher. And that's why we saw during COVID and during peak, the peak of, um, of ocean freight prices towards the end of 2021, large retailers were literally chartering their own ocean carriers, their own ocean liners in order to move goods themselves, even though it would cost $80, $90 million a year just to make sure that they can get goods there on time because the opportunity costs were so high. Yeah, that's um, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I remember hearing a lot of those anecdotes of uh, the Walmart to the world or some others, you know, just chartering their own anything really to get. They can't miss the sale, right? Because that sale to the customer at the end of the day is um, is something that they want to, you know, have that repeat of, uh, rate of you know transactions with that brand and not missing. Or if you're you know your manufacturer or have you know those goods, you have to be on the shelf of one of these uh, you know department stores or you know big uh, wholesale retail uh, outlets that exist out there, and you can't miss you know your shelf space. Um, right. That's interesting. So it sounds like, you know, which is the next one, which is really the bargaining power of, you know, the supplier, uh, meaning, you know, it sounds like it's more tilted that way, more so than, you know, the customer, customer being uh, the one trying to get their goods to where it needs to get. At least, you know, if, if you're if you're thinking about a balance of power, would that be maybe a, a decent way to characterize it? Yeah, I think the, the pendulum uh, kind of moves very, very quickly backwards and forwards in terms of sure. where the balance of power lies. So a year and a half ago, the ocean liners were king because everybody needed to move goods. Uh, they were canceling contracts right and left with larger importers that had negotiated great rates and basically forcing people to buy off of live market rates because they were selling their ocean containers for $22,000 rather than $1,200. Uh, right now, it's a it's a buyer's market. So if you're importing goods, instead of that $22,000, I just you know looked earlier today, you're, you're talking about $1,000 to move a full 40-foot container. These gigantic containers cost only $1,000. It's like very famous line that people throw around that it is far cheaper to throw goods onto a container, ship them around the world for the entire year than it is to rent warehouse space, you know, around New York. It, it just costs so little to, sh to ship right is now. Is that true? So the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> I mean, power has wow. just like shifted so far over towards the buyers and it constantly moves backwards and forwards. And I think that, that it's one of the challenges within the industry that there's so little trust and people drop contracts so quickly and we'll go back to the spot market that it's really, really difficult to reach a um, equilibrium where all parties kind of feel like they're getting a good deal.
Yeah. So it sounds like forecasting is probably the biggest challenge in all of that, which, you know, th that pendulum swinging because of the uncertainty around supply and demand. Um, and therefore, you know, if the manufacturer gets it wrong or whatever, the Walmarts of the world get it wrong in terms of uh, forecasting, you know, they're either over or undersupplied. Um, and then therefore, the, the, all the vendors have to go out to market again. Um, and depending on, you know, so, so yeah, no, it sounds super interesting there. The, um, you know, the, the substitutes parts of this. So there's, there's the 40 foot containers. There's the, the air freight as well. You know, there's chartering. How should you think about, you know, the different types of options that somebody has to get goods from point A to point B, specifically inter international? Yeah, you know, I think the, the real substitute is less, should I ship by ocean or air? That is something that comes to, you know, you, you will have seen, especially during COVID, some edge cases where somebody would need to move you know, sacks of corn by plane rather than by, by ship, even though you're paying easily 20x as much in order to move them. I think the real macro substitute is offshoring or uh, is offshoring or nearshoring um, because because ultimately, like when you're moving goods, you don't necessarily need to source it in one place. You can source it wherever you want to source it. And it might make more sense. And I think you're starting to see this right now within the macro um, economy, where even though it's far cheaper to manufacture in, let's say, Southeast Asia, the trauma from the past two years are forcing more manufacturers and, and retailers to think about either diversifying their sourcing um, and or to just totally you know nearshore it and just you know manufacture domestically. So the substitute, yes, you can move back and forth between shipping a full container or less than a container or air cargo. But but I think the real core substitute is diversify your manufacturing, and it's definitely something that we're seeing more and more. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, talk about you know, so, so the pricing at like a thousand dollars, you know, for a forty foot container today. Versus, you know, twenty something thousand uh, several years ago. How has the industry, I think, changed in terms of pricing? Meaning, like uh, contract lengths. I know, I, I believe before most things worked on more like spot or short term contracts. And then I think during COVID, people wanted to ensure that they had, you know, space on a forty foot container. So they started to, you know, contract out multiple years um, to for that, you know, build that relationship, ensure that contract. You know, how has that evolved over time? And like, where are we today, or wh where do you think the market is headed in terms of you know, how things are priced and, and contract lanes and things like that. Uh, so historically, larger retailers, especially those with predictability, would be able to go out and contract rates. Uh, so they would go out and put out tenders. They would work together with a bunch of different freight companies or directly with ocean liners, diversify their supply side, work with a bunch of different ocean liners and a bunch of different freight companies and lock in prices. However, as soon as prices would, prices would uh, jump up too much, ocean liners would potentially not honor those contracts because it makes more sense for them to sell in the spot market. And as I said before, there's always a lot of mistrust. And if a importer feels like they can get a better rate by moving something to a different ocean liner, they might do that. Um, so historically, there still was an attempt to try, as long as prices didn't change so much, there was an attempt, and most companies would probably get 80% of their rates and their volume locked in on a contract and do the other 20% on the spot market. Uh, during COVID, it actually switched almost exclusively to a spot market uh, game because the prices there were so much higher and the ocean liners could call the shots. Going forward, this is actually something that we're, that we're kind of advocating very, very strongly. That model of contract and spot and reneging on that doesn't really help anybody. And it creates a lot of a lot of mistrust and a lot of noise. And you also spend hours or days kind of negotiating contracts. We offer, and you, know, you mentioned it before that, that we use, we have a, a um, index for prices. And a big part of what we've done over the past couple of years this is a small part of our business. But we put together indexes of prices and made sure that we had external oversight over those uh, indexes or indices so that they can be used legally to as um, as trade for derivatives and for future trading. And last year, our indexes started to be traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. 
uh, as in for derivatives and index linking, and, and we have plans to do the same thing on the Singapore exchange. I think the idea is to move where a lot of industries have gone over the past 50 years. So right now, when you buy chicken, you could buy poultry based off of an index price and say, hey, I will pay 20% or you know 85% or 90% of wherever the poultry index is. I think that's one way, and there's, you know, aviation um, air fuel is, is priced the same way. That's one model that can make it a little bit easier rather than necessarily saying spot or contract, negotiating deals based off of where the market rates are, and that makes it a little bit more equitable for everybody. Yeah, no, interesting. The, um, so, so a couple more questions. Really, you know, I think we have a, a pretty good law of the land of you know, all the players that, that exist here. You know, the thought process, at least, of you know, getting it from point A to point you know, Z, I guess. Um, one question is really around the untanglement of all of this. You know, like, so you talked about nearshoring, which makes a lot of sense. That's one solution. But like, you know, stepping back and saying, okay, you know, outside of just you know, manufacturing it right next to where you sell it, I guess, um, what's kind of you know, another solution? Is it, you know, some say you know, have the, the, the bigger, almost like make it a duopoly on, on different uh, points where things can just happen much more quickly? Um, or, you know, is there something where, you know, regulation can step in? I'm just trying to understand, you know, what could be done in, from your point of view, from uh, whether it's Fredos' point of view, but uh, the industry's point of view, how about that? Uh, you know, how to streamline the process where, you know, you don't have as many, you don't have the reoccurrence of like uh, 2020, for example, which is clearly a one-off, hopefully, knock on wood. It's a learning experience for the industry. But at the same time, like, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and how do you make that uh, much more seamless where it doesn't actually require nearshoring where, you know, uh, geopolitically, everyone can have, you know, relationships with each other um, and benefit and, and kind of counterbalance each other in terms of what they do best for, from a skill set standpoint. But anyways, your thoughts personally or industry-wide on, on uh, how you can untangle maybe some of uh, the complexities. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, to, to dramatically simplify, the hardest part of COVID from an international freight perspective was not that there was a spike in demand or kind of shortage in supply or the Swiss Canal getting blocked. What it really comes down to is every system, and I don't think this is just international freight, every system has a certain buffer built into it so that you can afford when shit happens or shit happens in our case. Um, in, <laughs> in, uh, I get to drink every time I say that. Um, so, so what normally happens is ocean liners, for example, will have five to 10% of their ships will be at port and not being used just in case something goes wrong. And what ended up happening during COVID is that there was a confluence of so many things that went wrong, containers, that, empty containers in the wrong place and increased demand and bullwhips from demand that was trying to catch up and bad weather and you know, strikes at ports and port shutdowns from COVID. And all of those things meant that there was no buffer in the system. And therefore, without the slack, every single thing that went wrong would have this knock-on effect that would just kind of echo back and forth between you know, Southeast Asia and the West backwards and forwards for, for, for months and months and months. One of the biggest, I don't, I don't think there's one kind of fix all to make everything work better. And I also think that as a whole, when you don't have those types of incidents, international freight is shockingly effective. You know, we were just talking before, if you could ship a 40 foot container around the world, you know, 9,000 miles and it costs you a thousand dollars. That means there's economies of scale that are working really, really well. What we personally at Fredo's, or, you know, as a company you know, believe in very strongly is how can we digitize capacity and pricing and make international freight more uh, efficient from that perspective? I think the, one of the most shocking um, kind of data points that, that I like to think about on this on that front is from the air cargo perspective. That you know, we talked before about how 50% of all air cargo is moved in passenger planes. In general, IATA, which is the International um, Air Transportation Association that manages air cargo and sets standards, usually kind of ballparks that about half of all air cargo space is used. So when an airplane is flying on you know any random route, there is a full 50% of cargo space that's left available that was not actually utilized. And that's because it's not digitized. Back in 1970, a travel agent using very, very old school phones could automatically book, uh, book a, a space for a seat on an airplane for passenger travel. But that same airplane below the deck where you'd book cargo 
was still offline three, four years ago. And that that's why all these airplanes are flying around that empty. Because right, and it's an insane that same exact flight fifty years later was still not digitized. And that's starting to change. So we we started to provide digital connections between airlines and freight companies three, four years ago and, and already on a run rate hopefully to, to pass or hit nearly a billion a million transactions or bookings on our platform uh, next year. Uh, so it's really starting to gather steam there, but there's still a ton of rampant underutilization within the industry. And the more you can cram into a, an ocean liner, the more you can cram into an airplane, the more it reduces costs. So it costs less, the better it is from an environmental perspective, because you're basically you know, fewer emissions on the same exact chip. And the more it lowers costs for all of us when we actually walk into a store and buy stuff. Uh, so, so I think that's that's kind of, you know, from our perspective, that's one of the things that we're looking at. I think the other thing is, is just more more data used correctly. Uh, and part of that comes down to standardization, that there has been a groundswell of standardization across airlines, ocean liners, and freight companies, usually by the demand of importers and exporters that want to get all their data in one place. And I think the standardization is the first step towards better visibility, and better visibility is the next step for better decision making. So I think both of those things, better capacity utilization, uh, faster pricing and booking, together with more um, actionable data, uh, will probably, I won't say it would prevent something like the COVID supply chain crisis from happening again, but it'll certainly lessen the impact uh, to some extent. Got it. You kind of moved into my last question there, which was, you know, how does Freitos and maybe some of the other players like the Flexport sit on top of, you know, what is, uh, you know, an industry that ha- has not been digitized very fully? Um, anything else you wanted to add, just understanding, you know, the product and the technology that didn't exist, that will exist, everything from, you know, w- when you were talking about the the line of events that occur, whether it's, you know, pricing, time, some of the different factors, variables that are, that, you know, a company is making to decide, you know, to, to put two day shipping or one day shipping on their website. Uh, and then the price point of, of the cost of that shipping, and even to make that at all, to, to even offer it at all, you would assume that at, you know, some stage in the journey, this thing would be fully connected back to the, mm-hmm. you know, the manufacturer, um, or distribution facility for the most part, maybe for like an Amazon, it is where they can. Um, but for, you know, the, everybody else, which is still a huge market, um, you know, Talk about the technology that could streamline or connect that all the way down to, you know, weather, right? And all the different signals yeah. that someone like yourself or other firms that are doing it can get. Um, just so we have a clear understanding of, you know, where we were, where we where we are, and then we'll do a nice little uh, send off here. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned Flexport before. I think it's a great kind of example that I can use to show exactly where we sit within the ecosystem. Uh, so rather than being a digital freight company like like Flexport or, you know, C.H. Robbins, our, our large freight company, we're, we're more of a substrate player that connects between airlines and Flexport uh, so that Flexport can get better access to carriers and to airlines. So we work with freight companies, our, our largest customer base, we work with about 3,500 global freight companies that use us internally in order to access the airlines and ocean liners. And, and I think specifically on that point, it is so difficult to connect all these different players out there. And this is something that B2B marketplaces in general struggle with. Right? So B2B marketplaces will, will typically find it really, really difficult to bring on, digitize a lot of suppliers and a lot of buyers. And international freight has really suffered from that because it, as soon as you don't have one source of truth that connects all the airlines and ocean liners to all the freight companies and help those freight companies access importers and exporters, there's always going to be information entropy. That, you know, they, they just like to, to bring that down to like very, very real and concrete terms, if you're an importer and you call your freight company up and say, hey, I need to move 30,000 yoga mats from China. And they say, okay, well, the price for that is whatever, you know, $3,800. Then the freight company, you say, fine, sure, let's ship it. And then they go back to the ocean liner and the ocean liner says, actually, we don't have space today. If you want to ship that tomorrow, that's going to cost you $4,200. And then they have to go back to you. That whole process can't happen and that shouldn't happen. You said it before and I think you, you, you hit the, the, the nail on the head. Uh, ultimately, you want an ERP or an inventory management system at any, at any retailer to be able to see, hey, we have a gap in inventory. Where is that inventory being manufactured? Let's speed up the production of that. Let's figure out how we can get 
20% of it over as fast as possible by air. The other 80%, let's move the rest of that by ocean and have that entire process happen seamlessly. It, exceptions are always going to happen. You're always going to have uh, things that you did not plan. You know, it wasn't just COVID. As soon as the, the war um, between Russia and Ukraine broke out, you could see that prices totally spiked for air cargo in that general region. So there's always going to be stressors in the system. And I think that you always have people that are there to deconflict a little bit. But we, we need to get to the point where 80, 90, 95% of all transactions, all bookings, all prices, and all shipping management is digitized to let people focus on the stuff where they actually bring value rather than just having them answering the phone. And I think that's kind of where the industry is moving. And I think that's what's going to make everything much better. Cool. And you would say the percent we are today, if, if we need to get up to 80, 90, whatever. Oh, oh my God. Um, we're, we're just getting started. I mean, there's there's some com- countries where we're over 10% of all bookings are booked through Freitas, but it, it's a wow. it, it's a small, yeah, it, it's going to take a while. I mean, I, <laughs> I think you know, it, it's very, very slow and then very, very fast. Cool. Well, look, we'll end there. I think that was a um, you know good overview of a lot of, you know, it, it sounds like it's clearly a complex industry. The reality is I think we all take it for granted of, uh, you know, one day shipping, two day shipping, three day shipping. Um, and, you know, it, it's a blessing in terms of, you know, everything that goes on behind the scenes. And I think probably if you fast forward 10 years, considering we're only at maybe like 10% penetration, it sounds like in some of the more developed markets, um, using something like yeah, your tool uh, and your, your platform, I think, uh, you know, 10 years from now, uh, we're in good hands in terms of potentially, you know, the, the, the shipping industry or, or logistics industry more broadly. Um, you know, with that, I wanted to give you one, you know, moment to share where they can find more about Fredos, uh, maybe the index. Uh, for anyone that, you know, we have investment uh, professionals that watch this plenty and uh, firms and, and investors of ours as well. But um, I'll give you a moment to uh, share where they can find more about you and Fredos. Awesome. Yeah. So you can find, if you're an importer or exporter, you can learn more about how you can instantly compare price, uh, book, and manage shipments with different freight companies at freightos.com. Our solutions for airlines, ocean liners, and freight companies is available at webcargo.co. Uh, and our indexes and, and data is available at FBX for Fredos Baltic Index at freightos.com. Uh, we, we recently went public on NASDAQ um, in January, so you can learn more about our, us at fredos.com slash investors if you're interested in that. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think, you know, as you said before, Sean, uh, there's a big industry out there. There's a lot that happens that most people don't see. Next time you see somebody in freight, give them a hug. Uh, they're working hard. <laughs> For sure. Hopefully I never have to have you back. It means the freight industry is just cruising <laughs> along. No pun intended. But, the, um, but yeah, no, Ethan, uh, you know, thanks for coming on today and you know, really enjoyed it. Hopefully to have you uh, on another time where uh, you know, we can continue to dig into the space and get an update on what you guys are doing. So Phenomenal. appreciate you coming Thanks up. so much, Sean. Appreciate it.